Welcome to You Might Relate, a podcast where we take relationships and mental health to the next level. I am Stacy Heaps, a licensed clinical social worker, and I have been practicing therapy for the last 15 years. There are counseling concepts and stories that I am excited to share. When we know better, we do better. Together, let's get to a place of radical acceptance of where we are while improving relationships and tackling life's transitions, one therapy concept and one story at a time. So let's get started to see if you relate. Hello, I am so glad to have you here today. It has been a little rainy today, and so the air just smells so clean and fresh, and I am loving it. This is episode number nine, Cognitive Distortions. I have a son who wanted to run eight miles up and down hills, and I knew the perfect spot to drop him off and then run an errand and then come back and find him so that I could support him with food and water on his long run. He was only 14 or 15 at the time, and this just seemed like such a good idea to me. The road he was running on was not a private lane. It was somewhat busy, but it wasn't a busy time of day, and there was enough shoulder that if he was running against the traffic, he would be safe. I dropped him off, ran to do my quick drop-off. I came back to find him around mile four, and I couldn't find him. And suddenly the thought entered my mind that he got taken by kidnappers, and they were halfway to Vegas right now, and he was going to be sold into a very bad compromising situation. I could feel my heart race. I was hot and cold and was kicking myself for leaving my child alone to run on a busy road so close to Vegas. I am the worst mom, so irresponsible, and I need to call the police immediately. So I called my husband to tell him the bad news that our son is now a slave in Vegas, and he suggested that I drive up and down the route again, and maybe he was just further along or maybe he needed to walk for a bit. But still, there was no sign of him. After some time of looking and looking, he called and tells me that our son is home and safe. We figured out that he had ran way faster than what I had anticipated and then ducked into a bathroom at a nearby park. And then while I was searching, he just ran home and he had no idea about my worry. Today, we are going to talk about cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions are ways of thinking that are often inaccurate and negatively biased. Cognitive distortions usually develop over time in response to adverse events. So research suggests that people develop cognitive distortions as a way of coping with negative life events. And the longer or more severe those negative life events are, the more likely it is that one or more cognitive distortion will form. And I think it is also an evolutionary survival method for our brains to think worst-case scenarios so that we can plan ahead and do something about it before the saber-toothed tiger eats us. So stress and evolution play a part in our thinking that oftentimes very oftentimes, is not rational or healthy. Now, I attribute my thinking that my son was kidnapped to my growing up in the 80s and always being on alert for a Mr. McGruff, the crime dog. Do you remember him, all my 80s people? In the 80s, Mr. McGruff proved to be a successful campaign toward abductions, drugs, robberies, bullying, 
the people you could trust would put a Mr. McGruff picture outside their window and you knew that you could run to that house if a kidnapper was after you and you'd be safe. (laughs) The other thing that informed my thinking was watching the show Taken, where Liam Neeson plays a retired CIA agent and travels Europe to save his kidnapped daughter. Thank you, Mr. McGruff, and thank you, the movie Taken. Anyway, let's get back to cognitive distortions. Our brains have been wired to alert us to danger, attract us to our soulmates, and find solutions to our problems. It is nice to have a brain for these things. I am so glad I have a brain. And so much of the time, we can trust our brains. But there are times when we want to question what our brain is telling us. It's not that our brain is purposely lying to us. Our brains are just predisposed to making connections between thoughts, ideas, actions, and consequences, whether they are truly connected or not. This tendency to make connections where there is not a true relationship is the basis of a common problem when it comes to interpreting research. So I'm sure you've heard correlation does not equal causation. It means that because two variables are correlated, doesn't necessarily mean that one causes or leads to the other. Cognitive distortions are biased perspectives that we take on ourselves and the world around us. They are irrational thoughts and beliefs that we unknowingly reinforce over time. It's not like we're doing this on purpose. And it's difficult to recognize because it is so subtle. And because it is so subtle, that this is why it can be so damaging because it's hard to change what you don't recognize or acknowledge as a problem, right? If we don't know if it's a problem, how can we change it? Cognitive distortions are tendencies or patterns of thinking or believing that are false or inaccurate and have potential to cause psychological damage. Obviously, (laughs) these do not serve as well, and there are so many, but I am only going to list 10 here today, and let's see if you can relate to any of these. And then you can go and Google them yourselves and get a list of over 50 if you wanted. Just remember that we are all human, and it might be scary to think that we have fallen prey to this distorted thinking. They're also called thinking errors. It's cognitive distortions, or you can look up thinking errors. And it can be scary to think that, oh, I even have distorted thinking? No, not me. We all have them, some of us only occasionally, and some of us struggle with it chronically. Either way, it's not helpful, and just take notice as you hear them listed. All is not lost, and with practice, you can improve to recognize and respond to these distortions in a healthy way. So the first one I'm going to bring up is probably one of the most popular, and I know you've heard it, It's called polarized thinking, or I like to call it black and white thinking. When we think in extremes, you are the most popular, or I am the most hated. I see teenagers use this a lot. Everyone stared at me, or no one cares about me. The truth is, some people notice you and your friends care, and others are worried about themselves. There's some gray area in there. People who think like this do not see shades of gray. It's either all or nothing, black 
or white, and there's no gray. The house is a complete disaster, or it's spotless. Our religion is all true, or it's all false. He is the best, or he is the worst. If you find yourself here, just notice. And instead of judging yourself, try to figure out where that came from. This cognitive distortion has been associated with PTSD and anxiety disorders. So I think for our teenagers and also for our friends and family, if as long as you're not doing it in a judgmental, mean way, just pointing out, oh yeah, that's some black and white thinking there, you can show them this cognitive distortion. Okay, the next one is overgeneralization. This is a sneaky one because there actually is evidence that what you think is accurate because it might have happened once. So we take an event and then apply that conclusion across the board to all other events or people. Maybe you have had a negative experience with a contractor and now you have a belief that all contractors are just like the one you had the negative experience with. When we use absolute language such as never, always, everybody, nobody, that's when we are overgeneralizing. Also, believing one mistake by you or someone else means that all future attempts will result in failure. Well, I failed that math test, so that must mean I'm going to fail all my math tests. A good way to nip this in the bud is to notice and then reframe. Where you take all the contractors in Utah are crooks, maybe you think, I had one bad experience with this one particular contractor. That's the truth. Catastrophizing. Catastrophizing happens to be my personal favorite. This distorted type thinking, let's throw it back to dropping my son off and him not getting sold to Vegas, is when there is an ordinary worry or concern, just ordinary, hmm, I wonder where my son is, of something unknown, and then we go to the worst case scenario. We might call someone who catastrophizes things as an overreactor or hysterical. I have the funniest story about this too. One of my very best friends, she will listen to this and will be dying laughing at the end of this, but we were out taking our kids to the lake or something, and we stopped at a gas station for some treats. And she said, Stacy, can you watch my kids while I go in? And then I'll watch your kids while you go in. And so that was our plan. Yeah, I'm right here by your car. I'm watching your kids while you go run into the gas station. On her way in, she sees this guy coming out with his Diet Coke and a straw. He's sipping it. And she looks at him and she yells as he's walking toward his car, you better stay away from that car and my kids. And then she walks into the gas station. Oh my gosh, I am just dying. In her mind, she was catastrophizing in that moment. It's a, just an ordinary thing. She's just walking into the gas station. She has her friend looking out for her kids, but then she has a split thought that, man, that guy could take my kids. So that's the worst case scenario. And then she did something about it by yelling at him to not take her kids. And she looked like a crazy lady. And the thing is, is that she's totally normal. <laughs> she's totally great. But she just had this catastrophizing cognitive distortion in that moment and that time of her life. Maybe she had watched Taken too. I don't know. Okay, the next one is personalization. 
This one is so common. It's when we take things personally when they are not connected to us or caused by us. And I see this all the time in couples therapy. A husband gets upset that tonight he's not getting lucky. He assumes he did something wrong or something bigger is happening in the relationship. And he takes it to mean his wife isn't attracted to him, etc., etc. And then the wife sees that he's upset and assumes that it's her fault that he's upset. Both of them are doing this personalization thing. The correct thinking from the husband would be, huh, my wife was tired, sick, or not in the mood, and that has nothing to do with me, or she would tell me. From the wife, oh, it is disappointing when you're in the mood and your spouse isn't. It's okay for him to be disappointed. I am not in charge of his feelings. See that? You are not in charge of his feelings. It's okay for him to be disappointed. You don't have to own that. Another example of personalization is when you think you have been intentionally excluded or targeted. There was a cute girl in my neighborhood who got left out of a surprise birthday party for another girl in the neighborhood and thought she was intentionally being excluded. Truth be told, it was the parents who'd come up with the list and invited all the players of the sports team and didn't think about anyone else. It wasn't intentional, but for teens, that's hard to be the one left out. Helping your teen see the truth of the matter or the possible truth, and then also showing them that these kind of things happen even as adults, and it's important not to assign yourself blame without any logical reason. So you wouldn't want to say, oh, they didn't invite me because I am this way or I am that way or I'm unlovable or I'm not enough. No, 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 no. You're enough. You're lovable. They didn't invite you because they didn't invite you the end. That's it. There doesn't have to be this personalization to it. They are the ones that missed out at the party. The next one is mind reading. When people assume they know what others are thinking, and this can actually go both ways. When we think people should be able to read our minds, and then when we are reading other people's minds without evidence to go on. Some examples of this are that you arrive to work late and you're sitting there and you look around and then you begin to believe that everyone is looking at you and thinking about your tardiness. Or if your teen now wears glasses and they think that everyone is thinking that they are nerdy and no one would want to be friends with me, a nerd. The problem with mind reading is that you are assuming what others are thinking and convinced that you are right even when you are wrong. You are predicting something with little to no evidence, and sometimes this can create a self-fulfilling prophecy that then enforces the belief that you created. For instance, if that teen that thinks everyone is saying they are a nerd and doesn't want to be friends with them now, how are they going to act? They're going to act like no one wants to be friends with them. They're going to withdraw. They're not going to make eye contact. Maybe they're going to take off their glasses and put them back on. And they're going to sit by themselves at lunch. And now people might think, oh, that person really likes to be alone and studies by himself. And gosh, what a nerd. So see how sometimes when we mind read, what we think they're thinking can actually come true because then we act that way. All right. Emotional reasoning. This is when you believe that your emotions are the truth. The way you feel about a situation is reality. It is so important <laughs> to know that that's not true all the time. 
Now, it is important to listen to your emotions and use them as a guide, but it is equally important to judge reality based on rational evidence. I see this come up in therapy a ton. Someone will say they feel guilty for something even though there is no evidence that they have done anything wrong. And oftentimes in that case, I'll say, what's a different word other than guilty right now? A lot of times that's the word that they come up with. I always say, if you are feeling guilt, then I want to know what you did wrong in order to feel guilt. So for instance, maybe a mom says, well, my neighbor asked me to watch her kids and I said I couldn't because I had a therapy appointment. And so I came here instead. And, but I feel so guilty because she helps me all the time. I should have maybe canceled or made other arrangements. I should have found someone for her to have someone watch her kids. I'm feeling so guilty. Okay, what did she do wrong there? The neighbor's kids are not her responsibility. She did nothing wrong. She kept her appointment with her therapist. She politely declined. I'm not able to watch your kids today. Feel guilty for things that you actually do wrong. Don't feel guilty for things that you don't do wrong. Choose a different emotion to feel. Maybe she could feel, I feel disappointed that today wasn't the right time for me to pay my friend back and watching her kids. But not guilt. We don't need to feel guilty for things we didn't do wrong. Another example of emotional reasoning is when people with disordered eating will feel I'm using my quote fingers here, feel fat, even though their doctor and loved ones show them that their weight lies comfortably within normal range. Or I know of someone who wanted to marry a man who was convicted of sex crimes, but she had the feeling, using my hands again, that the person had changed and wouldn't do that anymore. So she married him, brought him into her home, you guessed it, her girls became victims. Feel your emotions, check with reality as best as you can. But your emotions, when she felt that he wouldn't do that, that wasn't reality. When this 98-pound girl feels fat, that's not reality. Sometimes our feelings are not reality. In fact, sometimes we are taught to feel a certain way under certain circumstances. So just check, check with reality. Okay, the next one is disqualifying the positive. This one is a tricky one because it's when we acknowledge positive experiences, but then we reject it instead of embracing it. So for example, this is when I might tell my kid, you played the piano so well. I love the way your expression came out in that piece with your fortes and your pianos. And my kid might hear that, but then say, well, you're my mom and you have to say that. So they're rejecting it. Or maybe your friend tells you that the event you put on was an amazing event, but then you think to yourself, they're just saying that because they want to appear nice, but really all these things were wrong with it. And ladies, how many of us, when someone gives us a compliment and instead of saying thanks, they might say, you look so nice. Oh yeah, I couldn't do my hair today. Oh, my shoes don't match. Oh, I didn't take a shower, (laughs) whatever it is. We discount the compliment instead of just saying thank you. We're pointing out the things that are wrong instead of the things that are right or accepting the things that are right. So if you do this, you might have had some severe hardships in life 
and are more prone to perceiving things in a negative way. You might even go on a dream vacation and instead of appreciating all the good things, the food, the scenery, the service, you are pointing out that the food is cold or it's too bad you have to wear a jacket or the sand is too scruffy or something. We're not appreciating life, right? When we're disqualifying the positive. It's things like that. We don't just accept the compliment, accept the goodness. We look at the negative instead of the positive. We're not accepting fully the positive. The next one is control fallacies. A control fallacy manifests as one of two beliefs. The first one is this, that we have no control over our lives and are helpless victims of fate. Hmm, sounds intriguing. (laughs) Or number two, that we are in complete control of ourselves and our surroundings at all times, giving us responsibility for the feelings of those around us. Both of these beliefs, you can see, are damaging and both are equally inaccurate and not helpful. No one is in complete control of what happens to them, and no one has absolutely no control over their situation. Even in extreme situations, like a recent hurricane or a divorce, an individual maybe seemingly doesn't have a choice, but you do have the control over your thoughts and how you want to think about it and how you want to see your future. You definitely have control over that. So we don't want to think that we have no control and we don't want to think we have complete control. The next one is always being right. Now, I am the oldest of seven kids. And I don't know if it's the oldest syndrome that likes to be right because I just know everything or what it is, but I relate to this one. Another kind of person that might relate to this are perfectionists. If you recognize this, it's okay. (laughs) Always being right is the belief that we must always be right. So for those struggling with this cognitive distortion, it's the idea that we could be wrong is absolutely unacceptable. How could we ever be wrong? I would never be wrong. And we will fight to the metaphorical death to prove that we are right. So, for example, back in 2020, 2021, we saw the internet commenters spend hours arguing with each other over an opinion or political issue far beyond the point where reasonable individuals would conclude that they should agree to disagree. But they are insisting that they need to be right, and that is a distortion. You don't need to be right. It is not air and water. You don't need it. But to them, to someone who has this distortion, it is not simply a matter of a difference of opinion. It is an intellectual battle that must be won at all costs. I hear couples who it seems just have to have their spouse agree with them. And they talk and talk or yell and yell at nauseam to have the outcome be that they are right. You know those talks that you stay up until 4 o'clock in the morning? This can also show up in cheating in games or not being able to say that you are sorry when you are wrong not be able to admit when you are wrong, if you did something wrong at work or in a relationship. So if this is you, please be aware of it. You don't need to judge yourself for it. There is a good reason 
that you feel this need to always be right. Everyone might be different, but it comes from somewhere and it was probably a protective mechanism. However, next time, if it's the game thing, next time if you find yourself wanting to cheat in a game because you just can't lose, practice losing that game. People want to play with other people who lose sometimes, not someone who always wins, especially if they know you are cheating. Also, it's okay to be wrong. If you are never wrong, then you are a robot. And although robots come in handy, we don't connect with robots. So look for ways to connect. Connection over being right. Also, it is okay to be wrong. Practice saying you're sorry, even if it wasn't your intention to hurt. Saying sorry goes a long ways in connecting. If you find yourself in being someone who relates to always being right, check in which areas they pop up in your life. Is it at work? Is it with your spouse? I know someone that says, oh, I only have to be right when I'm with my spouse. Or I only have to be right with this certain kid. Or I never can say sorry to this person. Just notice where that thinking error, that cognitive distortion creeps up into your life and you can change it. Okay, should statements. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. These statements are judgments on ourselves or others. Many people who suffer with depression and anxiety use these statements when describing themselves and their life situations. So if you have a panic disorder, it might be because you are thinking in should statements and this leads to anxiety and then that can lead to avoidance and isolation. And then to make matters worse, it can be cyclical and you can say to yourself, Oh, I shouldn't have had anxiety about that. I should have been able to handle this. I see this when people make decisions and then they say, oh, I should have made another choice. Or looking back on their life, oh, I could have raised my kids differently or I should have known to do this or that. Sometimes other people have should statements for us. You shouldn't let your kids do such and such. You could have done this differently. People are entitled to their opinion and they can say whatever they want because you can't control them. I've tried. It doesn't work. You can't control people. However, you get to decide if what they are saying is true and helpful. Okay, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. (laughs) I love this. Your thoughts are sentences in your head. That's it. And other people's thoughts about you are also just sentences in their head. And how often do we say sentences and then we're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And we want to take it back. Sentences in our head doesn't mean it's reality. They're just sentences. You know, we read sentences in the paper or on Facebook or in books, and they're not true. Sometimes they're true and sometimes they're not true. Well, sentences in our head are sometimes true and sometimes not true. You get to decide what to do with that thought. You get to decide if that's true or not. Again, go look at the evidence. Does the evidence point to that thought being true? Does that point to that sentence being true? With all of these cognitive distortions, there is a way to combat them. First, you have to be aware of your thoughts and where they come from. These are only 10 of them. There are so many more cognitive distortions, but I am already losing my voice. I can't keep going. So I'm just going to do 10 today. Take a list to your friends and family or spouse. And have them circle the ones 
that they think you have, and then you circle the ones that you think they have, it's fun. But as long as you're doing it in a playful and non-judgmental way. There is this book called Loving What Is by Byron Katie. You should read it. Byron Katie's story is this. She was depressed, had suicide ideation, just couldn't see her way out of her dark story. And one day she had an epiphany. She noticed that when she had positive thoughts, that she wasn't in pain. And when she had negative thoughts, but didn't believe those negative thoughts, she wasn't in pain. But when she had thoughts that were negative and she did believe them, then she was in pain and she suffered. So she came up with a way to not suffer with those thoughts. She asks herself four questions. If you have a paper and pencil or get out your phone and put this in your notes because you're going to want this for later. Here are Byron Katie's four questions. Number one, is my thought true? Now, this thought also could have been given to you by someone else. But whatever the thought is that is in question, say, is this thought true? Okay. Number two, can I absolutely know that this thought is true? There's very few things in this world that we absolutely know is true. And if we don't know that it's true, then let's move on to the third question. How do I react when I believe this thought? And number four, who would I be without this thought? We will talk about Byron Katie and the work, as she calls it, in another episode because it really does deserve its own episode. In the meantime, take your cognitive distortions to your therapist and ask yourself, is your thought true? Can you absolutely know that it's true? How do you act when you believe it? And who would you be without it? Doing that exercise can help you with reframing, realizing that it's not true. And if it is not true, then do I want to think something that isn't true? And I do have a really cool tool that I'm going to share with you later that makes this super easy. But right now, you can go to thework.com and download a worksheet that will help you do this part. I think that this is life-changing. Imagine if you didn't buy into the negative thoughts that you have about yourself. And what would you do with your life if these negative thought patterns were not controlling you? I started this episode telling you about how I caused myself suffering for about a half an hour because I was catastrophizing. And then I just knew he was in Vegas in a bad situation, which was emotional reasoning. And then after he was home and safe, I shamed myself with the shoulda, woulda, coulda statements. So all in all, I probably suffered over an hour, maybe an hour and a half, and that was just one small situation. Imagine if I would have used the tools that I actually had and teach and put them to use in that situation. I definitely wouldn't have suffered so much or maybe just a little or a little less time. Look at what cognitive distortions or thinking errors you are prone to having. Accept, laugh at yourself, be okay with it. Maybe even decide, huh, I wonder where that cognitive distortion came from. Then catch yourself in the act or right after and try to interrupt it. Use Byron Katie's four questions. Talk about it with loved ones or your therapist. Take it into her. And then don't be hard on yourself. We all have cognitive distortions. We're human. We're supposed to have them. 
I'd love to hear your funny cognitive distortion stories. How about that for a tongue twister? If you dare share them. In the meantime, take care and we will catch you next time. Thank you for joining me today on You Might Relate. I hope this topic brought understanding and insight. And if you can relate to something in today's episode, subscribe and leave a review. I would love, love, love to hear your thoughts. Also, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at You Might Relate Podcast. And be sure to share this episode with your friends. The more understanding we create, the better we are as humans. You are in charge of your day, so go make it a good one. Catch you next time.